Turn with me again this morning to the book of Lamentations, chapter 4, today. And we'll read the first half of this chapter this week, verses 1 through 11. And we have... Uh, another not cheerful passage before us this morning in this uh, challenging and, and somewhat uh, different book here. More grief and lament to wrestle with, uh, but we trust that this is here ultimately for our good, for our comfort, for our assurance, that it's uh, God's word to us. So listen as I read God's holy infallible word, Lamentations 4. How dark the gold has become. How the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breasts, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who reared in purple embrace ash ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger, and he's kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. And we'll end our reading of this difficult passage there. I can't remember where exactly, but I, a while back, came across a wilderness or backcountry guide um, for some region. And in one section, it was detailing some of the berries that you could find. Uh, in this place, and with with some pictures and descriptions, and particularly warning of the poisonous berries, and ones even that could could kill you if you ate them. Um, And the the description of one of them was particularly interesting. It said, this this berry may not kill you, but you will wish that you were dead (laughs) if you ate it. Uh, Such were the apparently terrible, excruciating, and lasting effects of it, you, you would wish that it had, had just killed you. Well, that's kind of like a, a summary of the misery of Jerusalem. Uh, after the siege and, and Babylon's destruction of it, uh, here again in this passage, uh, verse 9, we might take uh, as, as a sort of summary in that way. Uh, it says, Better are those slain with a sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away. Uh, some of the agony described here, in other words, is, is uh, so much worse than would be just a quick death uh, by the sword. Things are terrible in Jerusalem, especially 
uh, the starvation, as it's described here. And there are several different descriptions of the misery of Jerusalem here. And, and I would remind us, as we've noted a number of times, that this, all of this was brought on Jerusalem by their own sin. This was a very particular uh, suffering because of their rebellion against God and their refusal of his word and his grace over and over again uh, for many centuries. Um, and God's abandoning them. God's appearing to go silent and ignoring them for a time was simply his affirming the fact that, that Judah had ignored their God, that the true worship of God had gone silent, um, that they had abandoned their covenant God. And so God allowed them in, in what is an extraordinary way in Israel's history uh, to see and to feel the outworking of their sin uh, so that they would turn back to, that, to him. So I want to take up these various descriptions of their misery in this chapter as, as illustrations, as lessons about sin that they needed and that we need, uh, that we would keep turning more fully to God away from our sin and, and would see how great his grace is uh, as well. So looking at number one on your outline there, the first lesson uh, that's illustrated in Jerusalem here is that sin degrades and destroys what is good. Verse one says, how dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. And the sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. Uh, the, the author says gold is dark now. And, and you know, literally, scientifically, gold doesn't tarnish. It doesn't change color. It doesn't lose its value. You can purify it again. But um, it's figurative. It's poetically figurative for, for the fact that all that was valuable in this beautiful city has become tarnished. It's, it's worthless. It's ruined. And then it speaks of the sacred stones, probably thinking of the stones of the temple. The temple was uh, more literally destroyed, torn down, and, and it's just scattered around the city like rubble now. Uh, verse 2 goes on, the precious sons of Zion. It's, it's ultimately about the people of the city. Uh, weighed against fine gold, they're, they're valuable as well, but now they're regarded as earthen jars. The people of the city. Um, have lost their, their value. They were precious to God. But, but all of these point to the, 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 all of these images point us to the idea that everything valuable and beautiful and useful in Jerusalem is now worthless. It's wasted. It's, it's tarnished. This points us again to an idea we found in chapter 1 in Lamentations that all the precious gifts that Judah enjoyed from the Lord in Jerusalem. They've squandered. They've, they failed to value those things. They chased other things. Like someone who you've given them a you know, beautiful, expensive steak and, and a wonderful salad, and, and they want to just keep eating candy and french fries until they're sick. Uh, Jerusalem has, has chased worthless things um, and neglected God. Uh, there are so many connections between the lament of Jeremiah here, Lamentations, and Jeremiah's book of prophecy is, is warning about all these things leading up to it. In, in the beginning of Jeremiah, in chapter 2, uh, he pleads with the people to recognize what, what precious things they had from the Lord. He says, God has been a father to you, he, he, a, a husband to you. Um, he's given you freedom from slavery. He's given you this wonderful land and so on. Um, and, and the conclusion there in chapter 2, verse 5 is, but they walked after emptiness and became empty. Um, verse 5 in, in Lamentations 4 here continues this theme. 
Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Who are those? those are the wealthy people, people who could afford delicacies. It goes on, those reared in purple, the color of royalty, um, embrace ash pits. The, the rich and the royal, the, the celebrities uh, of sorts of Jerusalem now are out in the streets with nothing. Uh, it goes on to talk more about the special and beautiful people of Jerusalem. Verse 7, her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were ruddy in body. And verse 8, their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Um, a man named Bobby Driscoll, maybe some of you know that name. He, was, uh, he became a famous actor as a child in Hollywood. Uh, he went on to win uh, a couple of Academy Awards in the 40s and 50s. He was Peter Pan in the 1953 Peter Pan um, Became rich and, and very famous. Uh, somewhere along the line, started doing heroin and squandering his money. In 1968, he was found homeless and destitute and dead in New York City in an abandoned building. And no one could even identify him in New York City. Uh, none of the authorities. And so he was buried in an anonymous grave. He wasn't identified for another year. That, that reflects the descriptions of Jerusalem here, that those who were rich and fat and happy, so to speak, took for granted what they had. They ignored the God who gave it, and now they're completely desolate in the streets. It, it describes not, not simply just the fact of what has happened because of the Babylonians, but the result of their sin and the effect of sin. You need to watch that you value the, the gold and the precious stones, if you will, that you have in Christ, that you're in all of life, that, that your love of your spouse, that your parenting, that just the way you do your work or just your everyday life doesn't become empty or degraded, as is horribly illustrated here. And it may not be that these aspects of your life are destroyed or, or devolve into something overtly destructive like this, but maybe they just become bland and empty, empty of their purpose in the Lord, because all that you do as believers, is, is a rich vocation from Jesus Christ. It's a calling from the King of Kings himself. It has everlasting value and meaning, and, and Jerusalem lost sight of that. and Chased empty things and became empty. That's the first lesson for us to take away here. Secondly, I'll look at number two on your outline. The, the speaker mentioned several times in what we read this morning, the suffering of children. As one of the worst, most heart-wrenching aspects or outcomes of war and famine as they were experiencing here. Look at verse 3. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. So the result, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. There's a couple of comparisons here. Uh, jackals, we, we read about jackals a couple other places in the Old Testament. And in ancient literature, it was never a positive reference. Jackals were not a you know, cute, cuddly animal. It was a negative reference. It's sort of like if you're compared to Benedict Arnold or to a rotten egg or to Judas, or, you know, it's never a positive uh, comparison. But uh, the comparison here is 
even jackals are feeding their young. Uh, But mothers in Jerusalem are not. And then the other comparison is uh, to ostriches. And in the ancient world, ostriches were sort of proverbially careless about their young as well. Um, and and there actually there's there's biological evidence for, for that, especially the, the, particularly the female ostriches that apparently they are a little careless with their eggs and and their and their babies. But um, there's another reference in, in this an, an extended reference in Job uh, about ostriches with the same attitude. It says the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the are they the wings of love? For she leaves her eggs on the earth. Let's them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them, and that the wild beasts may trample them. So that's, that's how ostriches were viewed. And it's contrasted with the mothers in Jerusalem. They're so driven by desperation, and, and they're failing to care for their own children. It doesn't say exactly why or how this works. Probably at least it's because they're starved themselves, they're destitute themselves, and have nothing to offer, perhaps, but it seems there's something more ominous as well. Um, It says they became cruel, maybe of necessity, but but I think it's pointing to their being so deeply sunk into sin that they've they've cast off their own children in their hardship. And and even more powerfully pointing to that is is verse 10, uh, which I'd rather not reread, but it comes back to mothers and children. And says the hands of compassionate children, uh, of compassionate women, boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Here's this unthinkable image of mothers boiling their own children. And possibly, again, it has in view children who have died and, and mothers who are so desperate and hungry, but probably also so deeply ingrained in their own depravity that they would do such a thing. This was actually, as shocking as this, this was actually predicted by God back in Deuteronomy uh, as the people were uh, coming into the promised land uh, long before, hundreds of years before. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, God said that the people's sin would one day get so bad, a siege of judgment would get so bad against Jerusalem that desperate mothers would eat their own children. And here it is. Whatever it means, however exactly that works, surely part of the lesson is is the depth of depravity to which sin can take us and rebellion against God. And and we ought to lament that fact uh, in our world, uh, in our own lives, our, our family lives, our thought lives, our habits, and the reflections of that that we can see. Every one of us, if we're honest, could, could note ways that we have dabbled with sin or coddled our sin or ignored our sin, and, and then we ended up in some kind of a mess and wonder, how did we get there? How did this relationship get to this point? Or how am I having these thoughts in my head? It had something to do probably with uh, ignoring how destructive sin is. Every one of us is in danger of believing lies like, I, I'm not that bad. Right? Or I'm, I'm, just, I'm a good person, or I'm totally in control of my sin. That's, that's probably a particularly dangerous one. Uh, the, the, the week that my family, or the, the time of year my family moved here three years ago, almost, uh, in the fall of 2020, the, the largest wildfire ever in the state of Colorado was burning. 
And previous to that, the largest fire in the state had been the Haman Fire about 20 years ago. Um, and the Haman Fire was famously started by a U.S. forest worker uh, named Terry Barton. And she, in the course of the investigation, she lied a number of times, flip-flopped on her story about how it had start started, but, but eventually uh, confessed to, to starting it um, as they knew she had. And so it, she confessed and never went to trial, but the, the prosecutor said later that, that the reason that the case they had against her was this, that she started the fire intentionally in order to put it out, in order to be a hero. So put a fire out, say, hey, I found a fire, and then, and then she put it out. Um, so she started a little fire, she thought she had control of it, and very quickly it became you know, unimaginably out of control and destructive. We might read verse 10 and think this is, this is just ridiculously out of control. It, it's ridiculously abhorrent. How could that even be? Uh, surely I have more control over my sin than these mothers. But do we really think that our world or, or we are inherently any different apart from God's grace? We can't say that about our world. Mothers in our society legally have their children cut to pieces daily, not because they're starving, not because their city was burned down, not because their family was carried off to Babylon in, in slavery, simply because they didn't want the child or they wanted to go to college or, or whatever for no reason at all. Likewise, the mothers in Jerusalem surely didn't set out when they got married or got pregnant to, to do such a horrible thing one day, but such is the nature of sin and the depth to which it will go apart from God's grace. And we could trace literally thousands of ways that unchecked sin grows into a destructive and, and devastating force. That's a second lesson for us from these sad scenes. Thirdly, uh, looking at number three on your outline, all of this, I think, is built around what is probably a main point in verse 6. Verse 6 says, For the iniquity of the daughter of my people, the sin of Jerusalem, is greater than the sin of Sodom. That's, that's an incredible statement about the people of God, the people of Judah. Because Sodom, of course, is proverbial for its wickedness. Even to today, in, in pop culture, you can make a reference to Sodom. Um, just, just generally, and, and people will know you're referring, it, it, it's a very bad reference. They're famous for their sexual sin, of course, and the story of Lot and, and so on. Uh, Ezekiel 16 um, makes further indictments. It says this was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And they were haughty and did an abomination before me. They were proud, they were, they were prosperous, and didn't care for anyone in need at all. They're proverbial for their sin. It's also proverbial for God's judgment against sin, right? Fire and brimstone out of the sky. Um, and so this is quite a statement. How is, how is Judah's sin worse than Sodom? Well, you may recall Jesus made the exact same statement in the Gospels. Uh, in, a, in an extended version of it. Uh, here's from Matthew 11. Jesus says to the Jews at Capernaum, If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
It would have remained until this day, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus said to the Jews, you're worse than Sodom. Your your judgment will be worse than Sodom, those who were rejecting him. Why is that? Why, Why is that statement here in Lamentations? Why did Jesus say that? Well, it's because they knew the truth. Right? They knew the God of truth, the God of grace. They had, as, as Hebrews 6 puts it, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet they had neglected it and, and turned away. This brings up an, an interesting and I think important theological question, uh, which, which is, are all sins the same? There, there's, a, there's a powerful co- contrast made here. Uh, can, can we say this is worse than that, or those people are, are worse than those uh, in, in any sense? Sometimes people say something like that. Well, all sins are the same. Uh, sometimes grievous wickedness is dismissed by, by people saying, well, we all make mistakes. But what does the Bible teach? Well, think about it this way, just in our world. If, if you're a boss, wouldn't you make a distinction between employees who are acting foolishly and, and badly and probably should have known better, but maybe they're, they're new, they haven't been through training yet. You distinguish, distinguish between them and, and employees who have been around a long time, knew the rules well, they'd signed off on the policies, and they were acting foolishly and breaking the rules. Well, we see those same kinds of distinctions in the Bible. All sins are equal in one sense. They make you guilty before God. They're all... All sins are sinful and, and wrong, but not equally heinous or, or bad in that sense. This is reflected in Jesus' parable in, in Luke chapter 12. There are different levels of, of culpability uh, for, for the servants who are acting badly when the master comes back. Jesus says the servant who knew his master's will received a greater punishment. That, that's how our world works, how our, our families work, our parenting works generally. And it's that passage at the end, the famous statement is made, to whom much is giving, given, much will be required. The, the larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism helps us with this question of are, are all sins equal in, in every way? Question 150 says all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous. Uh, but some sins in themselves And by several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God. And then the next question uh, lists some of the the ways that would work. What what are aggravations that make uh, some sins more significant, uh, more heinous in God's sight? And it's it's a long answer. I won't read the whole thing. But some of the things that are um, gleaned from the scriptures are uh, someone who is of of riper age, if you're older, or or of greater experience. That, That makes doing what's wrong, more, more grievous, more serious in that sense. Uh, those who are guides to others and whose example is likely to be followed by others, the catechism says. Uh, it goes on to, to describe sins um, being more heinous if they're immediately against God or, or against Christ or the Holy Spirit or his worship. Uh, sins that are against the, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law catechism says that is uh, we understand both uh, murder and uh, anger in your heart against someone to be wrong uh, but one is against the clear explicit letter of the law and is far more heinous in in God's sight Um, 
The, the catechism also lists uh, sins done willfully, presumptuously, and boastingly. There, there's an important distinction between falling into sin and, do it and, and celebrating it. So that's, that's a point of, of a related point of systematic theology here, but I, I think there's practical benefit to thinking about that point and, and, and understanding those distinctions. There's benefit in our public life. Uh, there, are, there are sins uh, in, in more recent times in our society that have come to uh, be not just acceptable or there, but celebrated. Um, it, it has application to holding leaders to, to a higher standard. Uh, that's, that's something hopefully humbling and, and fearful in a sense for leaders in the church to confess and, and to recognize. But we also are, are politicians, leaders in the government. It's, it's right that we would understand corruption or wrong to be, to be a, an even more serious uh, offense. There's benefit to understanding and thinking about this just, just personally. I'm going to quote uh, Kevin DeYoung in thinking about this, this point. He says, Too many Christians have flattened the moral contours of revelation uh, such that we no longer distinguish between falling into sin and running headlong into sin. Uh, this means that some of us are too hard on ourselves, seeing no moral space between fallen temptations and flagrant disobedience. But some of us are too easy on ourselves, believing our heinous sins to be little more than, quote, struggles or mistakes. And many of us give up striving after holiness because, after all, we'll never be completely uh, sinless in this life. But the Bible, he says, points us in a different direction. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, yes, but not every sin is the same in God's eyes. So there's some of the some of the practical uh, benefits of, of thinking about that question. Also, I think this should simply prompt you to consider what you have been given. Uh, this, this scene and what we've read of, of Jerusalem here, think of what blessings you are accountable for. They're great blessings, they're, they're graces of God, and yet uh, you're, you're accountable for them, knowing them. You're, you're accountable for the knowledge that God is the creator of all that is. You here this morning are accountable for the knowledge that you are created in his image. You're accountable to him in that. You're, you've been given life and purpose by him. For the knowledge that, that right and wrong are, are unchanging uh, realities reflecting the very character of God. Um, you're accountable for the knowledge that God saves sinners. That those who repent of their sin and put their full trust and, and faith in him will be his children and, and enjoy him forever. You're accountable for knowledge that all of life is, is a calling from God and to God. When our family moved to, to Florida about 12 years ago, we were, I was given and helped to plant a navel orange tree. And it seemed very appropriate to, to plant an orange tree moving to Florida, and we were excited about this. We planted it in, in, in good uh, well, in a good spot. There's no soil in Florida. But we planted it in a good spot, um, good sun. We watered it, fertilized it uh, uh, exactly according to you know schedule and recommendations. And I pruned it. I, I sprayed this natural oil on it to keep this pest from eating it. Um, 
And every year it gave us big, beautiful oranges. And they were terrible. They, <laughs> they weren't juicy, and they didn't taste good. And there were only about five of them. Um, and it would have been one thing if we had moved in this house and there was an orange tree, old orange tree already there. We hadn't done anything to take care of it, and the oranges were terrible. Um, not a huge uh, disappointment. But because of my planting and carrying it and all the excitement about it, it was very disappointing and frustrating. And, and here is a, a much more serious challenge to us. It is our spiritual fruit not perfect, it is not and will not be, but is it commensurate in some way and, and growing according to the blessings that God has given to us and the knowledge that, that we've been privileged to, to have and to know. To whom much is given, much will be required. Those are three lessons that we find in this passage. Uh, look at number four on your outline then, finally. These... these Horrible scenes and laments of lamentations uh, should prompt us then to flee from sin. To flee from sin. To, to see how sin degrades and, and destroys what it, what it touches. Uh, to see how it, the, the depths that it can take us to. Un, unchecked and, and out of our control. To value and treasure what you have in your gracious God should prompt us to be terrified of the, the consequences of sin. Not only just the, the guilt before God and the judgment of God, but, but just natural consequences of sin. The way it degrades and destroys and tarnishes. We need to be convinced of that. It's not an easy or hard, uh, uh, fun thing to think about or to recognize. Uh, in, in college soccer, when I played college soccer, the first thing that we did at training camp every year was... Uh, a timed run uh, that we all hated. Um, those of us who had a scholarship to play soccer had to make the time to keep our scholarship. Um, uh, we had to do two miles in 12 minutes, and we continued to continue to do this run various times throughout camp, and then if we'd have a, you know, a bad game or something this season, we'd run it the next day. And, and so all of us uh, rather hated it. We loved running you know, to chase a ball or score goals and that kind of thing, but, but just straight non-competitive running is, is not something that a lot of soccer players love doing. I had one teammate, it was, it was grueling, and one, one teammate who, after a couple of years of this, told us how it was that he mentally did the run and, and made the time uh, each time. And, and he said that he imagined, as realistically as he could, that a bear was chasing him. Down the street, we just did this run in uh, two loops in a neighborhood, and, and so he ran from a bear for 12 minutes, or, or slightly less. Well, in this, in this fallen world, we need to be convinced, in a sense, of the, the bear that is there, uh, the sin that is chasing us, the sin that, as the scriptures say, so easily entangles, or the sin, as James says, we read from James earlier, that leads to death. And, and the sinful nature wants us to ignore the reality of that bear, if you will, that danger. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, after listing some, uh, some ways of turning away from the Lord, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. You fight that faith, that 
that, that fight of the faith in, a, in part in fleeing from these things, fleeing from sin. And there's only a, a hint, really a, a glimmer, again, of, of the hope and grace that we pursue in this passage. Uh, we, we've seen it shining fairly brightly in chapter 3, and, and now we're back into lament. But, but there is still a hint of God's grace uh, here. Even in the horror, for example, of verse 10. God identifies these people still as my people. As my people. That should be a powerful reminder to you that even in your worst days, when you fail miserably, when you neglect God or live for yourself, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Even your own sin. Uh, Verse 11 then as well, another uh, glimmer of hope here. Uh, Really a powerful one, if we'll see it. Uh, it says, the Lord has accomplished his wrath. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. The, the sense of that Hebrew word accomplished is he's, he's completed it. He's finished it. It's over. It, it's done. There was an end to it. It implies there was a purpose to it. It's something that ends. It, it had a redemptive purpose flowing from God's love and his faithfulness that, that was celebrated So powerfully at the pinnacle of this book in in chapter 3. We read the same verse, uh, same verb in Hebrew at the end of this chapter in verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity has been completed. It's over. Uh, God has ended his purposes. Whatever suffering God has allowed, whatever suffering God allows in your life, there's an end, there's a purpose to it. We actually read the same, the same Hebrew word as behind chapter 3, verse 22, where it was negated. His compassions never are completed. His compassions never fail, never are finished. And that's because of, only because of Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, Jesus said a similar thing on the cross. He said, it is finished. It is completed. It is ended. That there, there wasn't an end to God's chastisement of Jerusalem here because Jerusalem had done enough, because they had suffered enough, or they had suffered in a way that's uh, proportional now to their centuries of, of sin and rebellion. No, it was ended simply because Jesus suffered the punishment of their sin. Jesus had died in their place, and the same is true for you. Your suffering because of the death of Jesus is, as Paul says, light and momentary compared to God's eternal grace, his mercies that never end. Your suffering is purposeful and redemptive. So flee sin and and all of this horror that represents it and run to your gracious Savior. Uh, Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we do give you thanks uh, even for a difficult and sad uh, passage like this this morning for the warning that it gives us uh, of, of how destructive and sinful sin is. And we give you thanks for the way that it points us to you and how good and glorious and gracious you are. Thank you for the way that it uh, opens our minds to how uh, high and wide and deep your love is in light of our sin. Uh, we thank you for the Uh, the suffering of Jesus on the cross, the punishment for our sin, that we would never, never face it. 
And as we go through hard things in this life, the things that you allow for our sanctification to point us back to you, uh, help us to hope uh, and, and know uh, these things, to know your grace. And we pray uh, all of these things again in the name of Christ. Amen.